Thank you so much, Brent and Kate and the eldership team here. And good morning, Outlook Church. It is great to be here this morning. This is the first time I've ever attended a service here, but I've heard so many amazing reports over many years of what God is doing here. Thrilled to hear about your building project finished off. And well done. If you sowed into that financially with prayer, etc., our faith actions now have got impact even beyond our lives that we'll never know. You might leave Richards Bay, move somewhere else, die and be buried, etc., and yet your generosity and your faith lives on beyond us, which I think is a beautiful thing about God's kingdom. So yeah, as Brent said, I'm married to Jackie. We celebrated our 20-year anniversary this year. We have an 18-year-old who's writing matric. He's in the middle of trials at the moment. Our next boy is in grade 10. And then we've got a little girl who's nine years old. She's in grade two. And uh, my voice notes from her are some of the highlights of any trip away. She's just, just super duper. The Bible has got some amazing stories, just all of them written, put in there by God to help us learn and to help us grow. In the book of Judges, there's a story which is, I want to say it's hidden down in Judges chapter 17. Uh, if you've read through the entire Bible, you might have read it, maybe you've read it a couple of times. It's a little bit cryptic at first read, and yet it's a story that deeply challenges me, and so I'm feeling I'm feeling quite challenged this morning as I share this message. So why don't we dive into it and then see what we can draw out of it. It says in Judges 17, Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, is a vast sum of money, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. So this guy has stolen a fortune from his mother. She curses the thief. He doesn't want to be cursed, so he brings the money back. And his mother said, in true mom fashion, the Lord bless you, my son. <laughs> when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, he had a shrine, a little, maybe a room for religious worship, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as priests. Now, the words that are used here, although they might be a little unfamiliar to us, are actually words that came previously in the Old Testament. If you're brand new to the Bible, the Bible is split into two parts with Christ's life as the, the middle piece. And so everything in the Old Testament happened before Christ, the New Testament happened after him. And the Old Testament takes a little bit of, it, it's like a gold mine, you've got to mine a little bit to get the nuggets that come out of it. So Micah is borrowing language from how God told his people to worship him. Ephods were made for the priests, so Micah makes one for his chapel. The priests are going to be installed here. He takes one of his sons and he says, well, you can be our family priest. A young Levite, the story goes on. Oh, no, wait a minute. Verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
This was written over a thousand, just past a thousand BC, these words. And yet I don't know of a more accurate description to describe the state of Christianity in 2022 around the world. In those days, maybe I can reword it, the people had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, now Bethlehem is down in the south and Michael lived in the north. Uh, he had been living within the clan of Judah. He left that town in search of some other place to stay. He wanted an adventure. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Now, just a little tisanakis uh, here is that the Levites, out of all the tribes in Israel, were set apart by God to help the true priests with the worship at the tabernacle. I'll explain that in a bit in a moment. And so that's why Micah gets so excited when he hears that he's a Levite, because these guys were like picked by God to do the temple worship. And Micah says to him, live with me and be my father and priest. Uh, so I'll kick my son out and you can become the guy, because, you know, it's in your family line. I'll give you a salary of 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes, the King James Version says a shirt, and uh, your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and this young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. I told you it was a little bit cryptic, right? A little like... And at, at first read, you might read through that and think, well, you know, what's the big deal? I mean, this guy, Micah, he could have been doing worse things with his life. He, he's invested quite a large sum of money into building this little chapel, and quite a lot of money has gone into this image that he formed. And, I mean, he's paying a Levite guy a salary to come and, like, be their household prayer. Uh, there's some households I know that I'm thinking of back home where, like, they there's a designated almost like you the person who goes to church and prays a lot and so a whole family's good because of you. Often a mom or a grandmother. And uh, so Mike is like, hey, well, you can do that on our family. Talk to God for us and just like we want God to be happy with us. So we're going to put some energy and some money into setting things up. Actually, the story is the complete opposite of that. You see, if you read the first few books of the Bible, you see that God had a very specific prescribed way of how the people of that time were to worship Him. Thank God it's a little different now, but there were very specific instructions. We know them, some of them as the Ten Commandments. God had said there, you shall make no other, you shall make no images. What's Micah done? He's made his own image. The worship of God for the nation was to be centered around a place called the tabernacle, which later became the temple. Now, the tabernacle, if you're unfamiliar with that, was like this tent-like structure that was mobile. Wherever the nation moved, the structure could be packed up. And there were very specific instructions about how this tabernacle worship was to happen. There were three distinct parts to the tabernacle, and I'll come back to, that, um, to those three parts in a moment. The Levites and the priests were very specific where those guys were to come from, you couldn't just go and make anybody a priest. So essentially, what Micah has done is he's taken the true worship of God, which was very clearly laid out, and he's developed his own 
version of it based on, I would say, three things. Firstly, his version of his religion is based on convenience. It was quite a long way from where he lived to get down to the tabernacle. Petrol prices, I'm sure, were high then as they are now. It was expensive to go there. And so Micah's like, well, I mean, God's God and he knows my heart, right? And he's kind and loving. And so I'm sure he wouldn't mind if we just did it here rather than there because, I mean, God wouldn't want me to be put out. So it's a religion based around convenience. I I hope you can draw the parallels here. Because I'm not just talking about Micah, I'm talking about, not you guys, other people. (laughs) It's based firstly on convenience. I mean, the Levite, now there's a guy who should have known better. For a salary of 10 shekels and a change of clothes every year, he's willing to leave all the good stuff that God had promised them. And says, well, this is much more convenient. I'm on an adventure. I mean, God, of course, wants me to be happy, right? It's based not just on convenience, it's based on their own ideas. They are literally making their own stuff up, distorting what God says. What does that sound like? Like a whole lot of what the church gets up to nowadays. Based on convenience, my own ideas of what God has said. And thirdly, a false belief about God. The last verse we read, Micah literally says, surely... God will be pleased with me now. And now know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. In fact, if he had have bothered to figure out what God's really like, he would have known the opposite is true. God was very unhappy with people doing these kinds of things, but he truly says in his heart, like, surely now God's happy with me. I mean, look, we, we, we're spending our time and our money doing God things, but it's based on convenience their own ideas about God and a false, sorry, their own ideas and a false belief about God. Somebody once said that it's the, the role of the preacher to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I really feel like God's put this message deeply on my heart. I have a major concern for the state of the church, if I could put it like that, that so much of our expression of our faith is based around convenience and our own ideas and false beliefs about God. But we truly believe God will be happy with us because while well, giving God this is much better than you know, giving him nothing. We have developed a version of faith that isn't necessarily what God has in mind for us. The Bible tells us in Acts that the first believers in Christ were called Christians. And so we call our faith Christianity based around Christ. And I'd like to suggest that the version of faith many of us actually practice and believe is not true Christianity. In fact, I coined a word for it. It's selfianity, if I could put it like that. I thought up this word all by myself. (laughs) And I was so excited about it that I Googled it to see if anybody else had also had this bright idea and lots others had. (laughs) So I wasn't the first. But I'd like to talk, and my title of my message today is Selfianity. 
I'd like to give you some of the key doctrines of selfianity, the way I've heard them and sometimes lived them. The key doctrines of selfianity, so this is essentially a religion built around I, self. Number one, what does selfianity believe? Is that God wants me to be happy, and so he needs to do what I want him to do. By the way, the Bible never states that our happiness is God's mission. Not once. Yet somehow in the core of our soul, I hear so many people making decisions around, well, it will make me happy. And our language gives us away. We say things like, God didn't come through for me. God let me down. God disappointed me. We think these thoughts in our head. God never promised to be our genie in the lamp. And yet our version of selfianity puts me actually as God, him as the genie in the lamp, I'm borrowing from Aladdin's story, through prayer, <laughs> I beg your pardon, I rub the lamp a couple of times, God, thank you for being so almighty, what I need you to do for me is fix my wife and fix my kids, my uh, employer at work, and just like if you can make things good and make me happy, A second key doctrine of selfianity is, this is a core belief, is God is lucky to have me believe in him. I mean, there's so many people who hate him, at least he's got me that, like, and he's pretty lucky, you know? And I will express my faith on terms that I determine. I refuse to be inconvenienced in, in any way. And so much... Suburban Christianity around the world, just getting up early and going to church on a Sunday is considered to be a fair inconvenience. And I hope God realizes, like how I sacrificed for him. Do you know where else I could have been today? But I was there worshiping you. The third key doctrine about selfianity is this. God loves me the way I am. Just like Micah's version of religion, that first part of that sentence is true. God does love me the way I am. But we followed on with this doctrine that says, so I don't need to change. I would, I would put to you that a more accurate version of what God wants is God loves me the way I am, and he loves me too much to leave me that way. A fourth, I've got five of these, a fourth key doctrine of selfianity. Do you mind if I step on some toes? I'm leaving tomorrow morning early, so <laughs> might as well go for it. Parents, fellow parents, a great calling and pretty difficult job. But when our version of selfianity kicks in, we say something like this, is God wants me to be a good parent, so I let my children lead the way. I am stunned at how modern parenting has become all about whatever that little demigod, and they are demanding, whatever they say, whatever they want, that's what the family does. I have, uh, let me speak about our church and our community, uh, regular conversations with parents who are like, well, you know, you, you won't see me involved for the next nine months in church, sorry about that, but, you know, 
my boy's soccer happens to fall on a Sunday, and that's just... <laughs> I struggle so much with this. As a parent, surely the greatest gift that you and I could give our children is a model of what sold-out faith looks like. And if I'm serving my child ahead of serving God, and I've got nothing against soccer, by the way, what model does my child have growing up to say, I've lived with somebody who loved Jesus passionately? At best, they're getting, I lived with somebody who was a passionate selfie if they run my family. Nobody's thrown a rock or a Nazi yet, so I'm just going to keep going here. <laughs> Can I... I might step on a few more toes with this, but let me give my fifth key doctrine of, of self-unity as I've heard it and I'm observing it is that God is love and he is, the Bible states that he's more, more loving than we'll ever know. But we follow on self-unity, he says this, so any version of love and lust that I or anybody else feels must be from God, he's love. Surely he'd want me to express my love, my sexuality and any way that I see fit, because of course, back to number one, he wants me to be happy. And so, sadly, there is so little difference between how Christ followers live out their lives and people who don't follow Christ. The Bible is so clear that the expression of sexual intimacy is designed by a loving God to be within the fireplace covenant of heterosexual marriage. Anything that is outside of that fireplace is not God's best design and he calls it sin. But in selfianity, we don't like to use even that word sin because uh, referred to the above, those key doctrines. And so we've got a modern version of what Micah had, our own little shrine, we'll just do whatever we want, and truly God must be happy with me, he's lucky to have me. In fact, what's interesting about the story of Micah is that he's doing this up in the north, the true worship of God was in the complete opposite geographical direction. And I'd like to suggest that the true worship of God that he's looking for is in complete opposite direction of the things I've just stated. Let's go back to this tabernacle. The true worship of God in the Old Testament, and there's a parallel through, which I'm coming to, was designed essentially around three things. It was firstly, true worship was to be based on God's holiness. God's holiness is not God as a strict headmaster kind of looking down and waiting for me to step out of lines. Hey, Steve, be holy. Sorry, I'm waiting for a lightning bolt. No. God's holiness refers to his uniqueness, his otherness. He is pure. He is totally good. He can never think a sinful thought. He can never have a twisted motive, unlike you and I, where that's the norm. God is so different and he's so other to the creatures that have picked wrong, us, that when he invites them back to worship, he says, essentially, guys, this tabernacle and it was made of three parts. It had this outside fence and not many people could go in there and then the main part of it was called the holy place and then the other part of it the main main part of it was called the most holy place and in the old testament 
The only person who got to go into the most holy place, this was essentially where God lived back then, or where he revealed himself. One guy, the high priest, only got to go in there once a year. And before he went in, just before, he had to make a sacrifice and basically cleanse himself or let God cleanse him of his sin so that he went in there without another sin having accrued onto the list. It was such a profound, holy space that if that man inside there did anything that was displeasing to God, he would die, but nobody could go in there to get him. So they tied a rope around that guy's foot so they could pull him out again. Gee, that's a bit unfair. God, isn't your aim to make us happy? No, God says, I want you to start. If you want to worship me and see me as I truly am, you need to start with my holiness. I'm different to you, Wimble. I'm not like you. I'm not your buddy. I'm not your genie in the lamp. I am a holy God. And if you want to worship me properly, you need to understand I'm very, very, very different to you. I'm very other. In the worship that God had designated, totally different to Micah's version, the second thing that it was based on, number one, God's holiness. Number two is sin's dreadfulness. The book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers was a whole lot of rules that if you messed up one of those, there was only one way that you could be cleansed, made clean before God. And this was the system. You had to go and find a goat or a lamb. If you weren't wealthy enough to do that, you had to go and find a pair of pigeons or a pair of doves. And I'm not intending to be overly gory here, but this is exactly what the Bible stated needed to happen. You would take these living animals and you'd go to this holy place where God lived and the priest was to slaughter those animals before your eyes. Why was God so against sheep and lambs? Well, here's the thing, he wasn't. But my understanding of it is that, let's say that I was the guy and I've gone and stolen from somebody, I told a lie, and now I've got to go make right. I'm here making right, and the making right isn't just, God, hey, thanks, and you know, I'm only human, but see on Sunday, God says, you want to make it right, something has to die. And as each man, woman, and child is there, that lamb is is slaughtered and blood drips down on the ground. And that's God's message to me. That's how dreadful sin is in your life. It's not just a light, mild thing. It's a heavy thing in front of a holy God. This dirt on your life, it's not okay to just go and handle the white linen of God's holiness. You've got to be cleansed, but it's not just dirt, it's a stain. And until you understood sin's dreadfulness, you would never fully appreciate the third part of true worship, which was God's atonement, which is a Bible word two ways of understanding. If you take, just take the syllables, you could say it's at one mint. And so through that lamb or that pigeon, effectively God says, I'm being so kind to you, Steve. I'm letting that pigeon die in your place, that lamb die in your place so that you and I can be at one together. 
And the problem with selfianity is that we have such a low view of God's holiness and such a tolerant view around sin's dreadfulness that God's atonement means nothing. Year after year after year, animals are dying, they're dying, they're dying, being slaughtered to remind people this is how dreadful sin is. This is. And in spite of all of that, Micah sets his own little shrine up and says, well, surely God must be happy with me because I'm just, you know, I'm acknowledging God. In those days, the people had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And you see the most, the, the tie-in of how this story now gets all the way forward to us is that those sacrifices were actually pointing forward to a moment in history when God himself, the Father, sends God the Son. And Jesus Christ works, walks on this earth. And sin is so dreadful that God can't just sweep it under the carpet. Blood has to be spilt in order for at one moment, for this covering of sin. And on a dreadful and glorious day in human history, Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist said was the Lamb of God, this metaphor, is that all these little lambs could never do away with the root of the problem. So God himself comes and offers himself as the perfect Lamb once for all. That's how dreadful my sin is. And hanging there on the cross, every sin I've ever committed gets punished. But instead of me having to die, the Lamb of God, in His holiness and mercy, takes the penalty for my sin on Him, on a holy God who wrote the rule book in the first place. He's the only one who's unique and bright and sinless and pure and perfect. And I, a sinful creature, have got no way back to God except that this holy God creates the pathway for me to get back to Him. Now, living today in 2022, this message of God's holiness and sin's dreadfulness, well, that's not an easy message to process, to understand, and so we come up with all our own versions of selfianity. So I'd like to ask you today, how is your view on the holiness of God? Is it something that is lofty and awesome and amazing? That I don't mess around with this life that he's given me. I don't see how much I can get away with because that's not what holiness is about. And do you and I have a good understanding of sin's dreadfulness? Our sin's dreadfulness. It's a very interesting thing to me that throughout church history, there have been these major moves of God that some church historians refer to as revival. And at the center, the core, the starting point of most of these revivals is the message of God's holiness and true repentance, which means turning away from my sin's dreadfulness. It's, it's one of the features of what drives these revivals. 
the Welsh revival in 1904-1905 amongst poor Welsh miners in, the, in, the, in rural Wales. Evan Roberts and many others would preach and miners would walk out of the door and on the way back to their home under the conviction of God's Holy Spirit would fall, call it unconscious, although they weren't entirely, but into the grass on the side of the field and lie there the entire night. And when they woke up in the morning, their language had changed. Those that abused alcohol stopped drinking. Those that used to beat their wives stopped. There was such a turnaround in their lives because they came face to face with God's holiness, sin's dreadfulness. In fact, someone once wrote that the, the mules and donkeys that were used in the Welsh mines to pull the coal out, they only responded to the miners' old language. And when these miners became true Christ followers, the donkeys had to be retrained because they, were, they didn't obey the commands of a tongue that had been cleansed. 1995 in a little town in America called Pensacola, this amazing revival broke out there and I had the privilege of three years later uh, going there for a week and it was profound uh, with no real glitz or glamour or anything but queues from one o'clock. If you weren't in the queue by one o'clock midday, you wouldn't make it into the 4,000-seater building. And they would worship and then the the preacher would get up and preach and he would drive home the fact that God is holy and we don't deserve his love and sin is dreadful and there was such a conviction of God's Holy Spirit. People during the message would be standing up wanting to run down to the front to say, God, I'm so sorry. And this preacher would say, don't come yet, don't come yet, I'll tell you when to come. And he would go for another 15 minutes or so, let's stand, let's move these chairs, don't come yet. But I'm telling you, if you need to make right with God, you. and then he would eventually say, right, come. And with tears streaming down my face, I observed hundreds of people running down over the steps of the stage, just on the carpet, weeping, sobbing, begging God for his forgiveness. you've had a good view of sin's dreadfulness and God's holiness, then this atonement that God gives us is the most precious treasure in the world. The fact that I can pray our Father in heaven to a holy God is an astonishing miracle. It all started with him. And my whole life should exist to bring him glory. And yet there's this tug on our souls back into selfianity. I'd like to bring this message in for a landing today, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to do that. I don't know if the guys at the back, if you've got just a uh, worship song that you could put on the speakers, or Jody could come and play the keyboard, Brent, whatever's the, or someone else. Maybe we can get the whole music team up and just to create a musical background for us. But I have a very deep sense that God wants to do some deep interactions with our hearts today. And that if any form of selfianity has become your real, that before God, you would say to him, Father, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten about your holiness and sin's dreadfulness and I've taken for granted these things. 
you're not lucky to have me. I'm lucky to have you. I don't deserve a single good thing from you, and yet you lavish grace into my life. I don't, you don't exist to make me happy, but I do exist for your glory and your fame and my happiness. My joy is actually tied into that, and that's what I want to do. And I don't know exactly how to do all of that, but I'm here, Lord God. I'm submitted. Thank you that the lamb died so that I could live. Why don't we stand together? be brand new to church and your friend invited you today and you're like man I wasn't expecting that the amazing thing is that there's no coincidences with God he knew your story and he knew that he wanted you to be here today and we might never meet in person between now and being in eternity but maybe today was God's gift to you to say you're on the wrong path but I love you so much that I'm not leaving you on that path. And right where you're standing, you can talk to him, close your eyes and talk to him, say, God, I'm, I'm so sorry for my life and living for myself. I acknowledge Jesus Christ that you died on the cross for me. I put all of my faith in you. I wanna follow you for the rest of my life and be with you for all eternity. Guys, if you, if you could just play but not sing, and why don't we all just take a minute or two to talk to God and allow more importantly Him to talk to us.
you, Lord. There's such an amazing sense of, of God's presence, the fear of God. It says, and, and, and the fear of God came upon the church. It's a beautiful thing. Father, would you let the, the, the fear, that healthy sense of reverence and awe come upon our hearts. Friends, I know what it's like to just go to church meetings and, and make kind of decisions, responses. And I know what it's like when the true convicting power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I remember all those years ago when, when I gave my life over to Jesus, it, it wasn't just a, hey, let's pray a prayer. There was the sense of something deep inside of me was crying out, you need to make right with God today. No one had to like force, encourage. This was God on the inside saying, today is the day you need to make right with me. And so that's why we don't have to force it. But we do want to give you an opportunity. We're going to finish off the meeting and people are going to have coffee and tea. But some of you right now, you know it. Because deep inside, there's this wrestle. There's this, this I, I don't even know how to describe it, but you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something inside of you. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Today, you need to make right with God. And friends, if that's you, we're going to have some of the elders, some of the deacons, some of the leaders right up here afterwards. And don't miss that moment. Don't, ah, me and God. No, no. If that's going on inside of you, then make right with God today. Got one word of knowledge which we want to share as well, just in terms of healing. Come on, Marilise. This is when God puts his finger on something, he reveals it because he wants to heal it. And so why don't you share? This morning in my quiet time, um, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that there's someone here today with a serious throat condition. It's not like a grapanikil, it's more serious than that. And like Brent said, God is here. His spirit is here. Jesus wants to heal you. So if that's you, please come up so that we can pray for you. Thank you, Lord. So Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the power of your word proclaimed under your anointing. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing our hearts, our soul and spirit, piercing us, but in a good way. And Father, we pray that you would help us hold on to this word, protected by the Holy Spirit, so that it would produce fruit in our lives. Father, this is a defining word for us. And we want to see, we want to see the fruit of living. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that your gracious hand is upon us. Thank you for Steve and Jackie and, and their willingness to come and serve us in this way. Father, we give you all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name. Friends, we're going to end our meeting there. We've got our tithes and offering box that's at the door. If you want to make use of that, please drop your little cup at the door as well. But some of you, it's not over. For some of you, the meeting hasn't finished. Because for some of you, we want to be praying for you right now. So may the Lord bless you. Have an outstanding week. God bless. And hope to see you again soon. Amen.